Let's intro up. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Ben Pronk and I'm joined by my co- I was going to introduce you. You jumped the gun. Go for it. And I'm joined by my co-host, Tim Curtis. I like surprise. G'day, Ben. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm, I'm actually all right. I'm, I'm the tail end of COVID. Mm. Have you heard of, am I pronouncing that correctly? COVID? It's, um, As you know, I wouldn't know. I have excellent health and hygiene. <laughs> and that does play into the topic of our podcast today. Breathing. Kind of important. Yep. And can you do more on less breath? Mm. And I think that theme of more or less breath is going to be central to um, our conversation today with Brian Firth. Now, we became aware of Brian uh, thanks to an anonymous listener who wrote uh, into us. And we certainly encourage all our listeners to, to write in uh, at our um, email debrief at unforgiving60.com. And this particular listener did to recommend that we get in touch with Brian. Brian is a Bateco breathing instructor, and we're going to uh, explore exactly what that means and what that entails, um, who is actually one of the, the kind of world leaders in this area. He's helped over 6,000 people retrain their breathing. And um, as we're going to discuss with him, this is not a breathing technique, but it's a method of retraining your, your baseline breathing rather than, than something you do a couple of times a day. Yeah, there's some interesting peer-reviewed um, work on journals about how this can help asthmatics. Brian will talk about the relationship with breathing and crooked teeth. And for those people that don't sleep too well, he might have the solution for you as well. And interestingly, it's not just for those people that sit to the left of a wellness scale. He's also cited a few professional athletes that use the same style of breathing, including one of your um, favourites, Ben, Elliot Kipchoge. The uh, goat. The greatest of all time. Absolutely. And so it seems like all walks of life could benefit. And in those 6,000 plus people, it includes those over the age of 90 and also those down in their teen years. Yeah. And Look, the more I know we've spoken about this previously, the more I read and learn about breathing, the more fascinated I am with what a powerful, controllable tool it is that we have at our disposal to do a whole bunch of different things. Um, as I think I've spoken about before, I really like uh, Wim Hof style breathing. I'm going to ask Brian what he thinks of that. It seems very different to, to the kind of techniques he preaches, but I'm fascinated by that link between our breathing, our nervous system, our sleep, mm. our levels of anxiety, and um, then even some of those more chronic things like the shapes of our heads and our ability to, to sort of um, uh, go through life at the, the optimised fashion. I don't know what you've been doing in your breathing patterns to get the shape of that head. <laughs> I think it, this speaks to a perfect breathing pattern. <laughs> per perfectly pointed. <laughs> Perfectly so breathing, it can... I've been breathing melons. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like you've been doing breathing five point five six millimeter rounds. <laughs> Conehead. <laughs> so breathing, it can help us to emotionally regulate. It perhaps can help us to overcome chronic illness, and perhaps also it can help us in our athletic performance. Let's check it out. Let's get on with the show. Well, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis, as always, with my co-host, Ben Pronk. 
Yep, but a socially distanced Ben Pronk. I'm in the last day of a seven-day isolation stint with COVID, and I have been having a little trouble breathing as a result of this mm. virus. So it's probably a awesome opportunity to pick the brains of, of someone who definitely knows a thing or two about breathing. Brian Firth. G'day, Brian. How are you? G'day, Ben. How are you going? Yeah, all right, actually. On, on the, the tail end of the illness, I'm, I'm coming good. That's good. Um, Brian, where, and, and I think me in particular, I, I think I took breathing kind of for granted for many, many years. Um, we got exposed to a couple of breathing techniques through our previous careers in the military, which started piquing my interest. But it really wasn't until I read uh, James Nestor's book, Breath, that I really started to understand there is a little more to this than um, just sucking in uh, a bit of air. Now, you've obviously spent your, your life um, sort of very interested in this. Could we start by talking about what got you interested in this thing called breathing um, and in particular your, your journey into Botaco? Yeah, okay. Well, look, um, I'm, I'm um, uh, on the wrong side of uh, my 60s at the moment, and uh, but I always suffered from, uh, I seem to always suffer from breathing problems. I had asthma as a kid. I was a chronic mouth breather. Always had a blocked nose and uh, uh, basically putting up with asthma, also uh, uh, having two nose operations, which weren't very successful, one at the age of 17, another one in my uh, late 30s, early 40s that were unsuccessful. And uh, what brought it to a head was, I think, uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the 90s, I started doing a lot of uh, long-distance pushbike riding. And in Melbourne, I was living in Melbourne, um, I, there was, there's an event every year called Around the Bay in a Day, which people ride, crazy people ride their push bikes around Port Phillip Bay in one day. It's 220 kilometres. And so I started doing a lot of push bike riding. So I was pretty fit, but my sleep just went terrible. I was waking up four times a night with asthma, needing four or five blasts and uh, go back to sleep. And uh, everything was getting worse. So I went to the I finally went to the doctor and he prescribed some pretty strong drugs and um, and then I found out about uh, this uh, breathing retraining business. So I, uh, yeah, I did the course in 98 myself and uh, had great results. I haven't had a puff of Ventolin since and I trained as a, as a practitioner in 2005 and had, had pretty much been doing it since. So that's really how I got into it. But the technique's not new, is it, Brian? I mean, uh, so it started in Russia in the 1940s with uh, uh, a Russian, Buteko. Or in who, U- was that a Ukrainian, actually? Obviously a topical sort of part of the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it, yeah, I think he was Ukrainian. But the, the history is that it was reasonably well recognised in um, Soviet countries there. But in 1990, history is a guy called Stelmatsky uh, came to Australia, um, uh, taught between one and 2,000 people, in, mainly in Melbourne and Sydney. Mm. And then, uh, so we were the first place in the Western world, mainly because we have a very bad record of um, respiratory with asthma and so forth. And um, yeah, towards the end of the 90s, uh, a group of people that were originally trained formed uh, a professional body called the Potato Institute of Breathing and Health, which I'm the secretary, and that's really how it was introduced. I would like to point out one thing, though. A lot of people have a bit of a misunderstanding. They say they use the word breathing technique, okay? To, what we do is not a breathing technique as such. It's a method for altering or resetting or correcting or improving the way that you breathe all the time, okay? So it's quite a different thing. Um, we breathe something like 20,000 times every 24 hours. So doing a little bit of breathing here, there, and everywhere, it's not going to do much. But understanding how breathing works and how it becomes incorrect, and then people can understand how we go about correcting it. Right. How did it get so bad? This is something obviously so fundamental to us as a species. 
And I know in Nestor's book that I mentioned before, he does talk about this sort of degradation and some of the the wonderful stories he talks about um, with some in Indigenous. He talks about uh, Native Americans um, often having much better breathing techniques and patterns um, and resulting in, in much different uh, facial structures. You know, it, it, it has these sort of flow-on effects. How has it gotten so bad in the Western world that we would need to relearn how to breathe efficiently? Very good question. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's not a simple answer, but... The first thing to understand about breathing, and this is something that most people don't understand, I'm talking about the community, people, and the medical world, unfortunately, despite a lot of little studies done. Here's the thing. People's breathing changes in time, just like people's weight can change, people's fitness can change, people's flexibility. You know, I used to be able to touch my toes a little bit more easily, yeah? Um, so it's called your minute volume, okay? Uh, and it's the volume of air that you breathe with each breath, okay? And, and people just don't get that fact. And a good way to understand it very briefly is just like when some people overeat, over a long period of time, we put on weight. We say our body changes, okay, <laughs> until we do something significant about it. In a similar fashion, but nothing to do with weight, when people overbreathe, okay? Now, most people think you can't breathe too much, but you can. If someone breathes through their mouth instead of their nose, they're breathing a higher volume than what they're supposed to for their physical activity. Right? So if you breathe through your mouth at rest, walking, sitting, standing, sleeping, okay, you're actually overbreathing, And that is the definition, if you look it up, of hyperventilation. Hyperventilation is breathing more than what's required for your physical activity. Yeah. So, and over time, this will alter the volume you breathe all the time. The other thing that does it is that we live in a culture that worships deep breathing. Yeah. Everywhere you say, oh, I'll take a deep breath, so, solution for most <laughs> problems. But deep breathing is not a good thing. Deep breathing is like deep eating. <laughs> We're allowed, we, all, we all like to take a deep breath, oh, it feels nice, but we all like to have a triple burger as well. <laughs> but if we do it all the time... It's not good for us, yeah? So what's happened is when, when people over-breathe over a period of time, their breathing becomes incorrect and nobody does anything about it. And our lives have become um, more complex and more competitive. Yeah. Our parents had the same job forever, mum's dad. Not, life's not like that. So there's more S-word, stress. And everybody blames everything on the word stress, but nobody tells you why stress impacts a person's uh, health. And the reason is because stress causes people to overbreathe. Stress comes in three flavors, chemical, illness, physical, pain, and what most people think of stress is emotional, anxiety. So if we've got too much or any of those things, our body goes in defense mode, heart rate increases, and the breathing increases. So you've got a lot of pain, a lot of illness, a lot of anxiety, whatever, being busy, whatever. The breathing becomes incorrect. And nobody does anything about it, okay? And when the breathing gets to a certain point, problems occur because the efficiency of breathing, which is the process of getting uh, oxygen out of the air, which is what the lungs do, and then putting it in the transportation system, which is what the blood and the heart does, and then releasing it to ourselves, becomes inefficient. And so the body feels, seems, sounds weird, that they're not getting enough oxygen. So the body tries to stop them breathing like that. Hence, some people get blocked noses, other people get blocked bronchial tubes, which is asthma, and only one in 10 get asthma. And other people have disturbed sleep, sleep apnea, where they stop breathing in their sleep and so on. Now, when you go to the doctors with all these problems, they treat them all um, symptomatically. Okay, um, so they treat the symptoms, okay, which is drugs and, and CPAP machines for people with sleep problems. And these help, you need drugs if you can't breathe, but they all have a side effect uh, because they're not addressing the problem of actually increasing the breathing. So it gets worse. Yeah.
but from what I understand you're saying, um, a lot of these stressors are causing our body to go into a natural sort of sympathetic nervous system response. And one of the, the byproducts of that is that increased breathing, the hyperventilation. And um, am, am I correct in understanding what you're saying is that, that your body over time, if that's a chronic uh, sympathetic response, will try to do things to slow it down like um, sort of trigger uh, sort of blockages, sleep apnea and, and those sort of things? Correct. Correct. So what happens is it's our, our breathing becomes, our minute volume increases and it becomes increases to a degree, just like people can be overweight to a degree, people can be unfit to a degree, okay? So when it gets to a certain point, though, because of the oxygen thing, okay, now once you're breathing crosses a line, yeah, then anything you do now that makes your breathing worse, even worse, the body will react, okay, because the human body's fantastic organism always tries to self-correct, okay? So just for example, if somebody lies down to go to sleep, okay, lying down increases your breathing. We're, we're more efficient when we breathe when we're upright, okay? We're designed to operate up and down. We only lie down to sleep, yeah? So when we lie down, this increases everything. Now, when you fall asleep, <laughs> you now breathe the volume that your body's come to breathe over time. Yeah? And for many people, when they go to sleep, their mouth comes open, yeah? And the reason why it comes open is because the volume of air that they're breathing, they can't cope breathing through the, 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 the narrower, okay, but more correct um, nasal path. And so, and then they make a big noise because heavy breathing makes a noise, just like blowing a whistle hard makes a noise. Blowing it soft doesn't. Breathing soft doesn't. So when you breathe heavy and it's noisy, that's called snoring if you're asleep. Now, as it gets worse, then instead of your body going through these nice cycles, deep and uh, deep and light sleep, deep and light sleep, deep and light sleep, and waking up refreshed, the body's saying, I'm not getting oxygen, and he's made it worse by lying down. And so it wakes you up or pumps your heart faster to get more oxygen. Yeah? Or it physically stops your breathing and you sleep with sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. Brian, we're taking a look at some of the uh, peer-reviewed evidence on what is described actually in a few journals as the breathing technique. And actually, some of them are very positive about the effects of BBT for things like asthma. However, uh, they all comment that it warrants further examination. There's merit, but there needs more. there needs to be more evidence. And one of the things that they cite alongside that is the method is too complex. Could you talk to the method and whether it is too complex? Uh, well, it's not very complex. I mean, I don't think it is anyway. Um, I've taught over 6,500 people, little kids from five and about eight over 90, okay? <laughs> and they've all coped very well. Um, the process is, so what I offer is, a first of all, just to, clarifies it, it's, the, it's a, called a breathing retraining course. So it's a course that teaches people how to reset the way their breathing works all the time, okay, so that they can sleep, breathe n- gently, nasally, day and night, awake or asleep. So basically, um, technically, we teach them how to lower their minute volume. So you can imagine it's like somebody teaching somebody who is unfit how to get fit and and then give them a goal to say, run five kilometers or, or, or be able to run 10 kilometers. So retrain their breathing, getting to the end of the course, and then give them a goal to maintain for the rest of their life, okay? And the process is this. First of all, <laughs> explain how breathing works, okay? Which is similar to what I just told you about, you know, over, over breathing and how it affects the breathing, okay? And then we delve a little bit more deeply into explaining why and how it becomes inefficient when you do this, okay? Now, once people understand that, then the, breath, the, the course, which involves simple, gentle, natural breathing exercises done sitting in the chair for about 10 minutes and a whole lot of other lifestyle changes like how you breathe when you're altering the way you breathe, when you cough, yawn, sneeze, sigh, all these little things, exercise, um, eat, speak, Altering all those little things 
it is what we do. Now, to me, it's not very complicated, okay? But let me just make one point about complication. It's a little bit controversial, but if you've got asthma or if you've got a blocked nose or if you've got sleep apnea, then you go to a respiratory specialist in Australia, no one ever gets better. No one, not one person. <laughs> they all get symptomatic treatment, which is helpful, medications to reduce the symptoms, CPAP machines to slow their breathing, maybe, but they don't actually get better, okay? And that's because, unfortunately, uh, just the fact of life that when it comes to respiratory things, they, they just don't really get it. And they can't believe that it can be actually a bit more simple than, than what they expect it to be. And so looking at this, you know, we've got the, I guess, the medical fraternity looking at the, the symptoms and our Ukrainian friend, uh, sort of Mr. Bateko, looking at the, the underlying cause. What, what other benefits are linked to increasing the effectiveness of your, your breathing? You've, you've mentioned uh, that combating apnea, uh, sleep apnea and, and asthma. Um, are there other sort of demonstrated benefits that uh, your practitioners have seen over the, the implementation of, of the more effective breathing methods? Absolutely. I mean, we believe, and the medical world, they, they don't, to be fair, but we believe, and there's evidence to show, plus 6,500 of my clients, is that when people retrain their breathing, that this is the root cause of why people get asthma, why people get blocked noses, nasal problems, uh, sleep apnea, sleep problems, anxiety, it leads to panic attack, where people actually lose control of their breathing. Yeah? And by retraining their breathing, we find that within days, people, six and a half thousand people, I've only ever recommended three people to go to an ENT and consider surgery or a physical problem with their breathing. Very quickly, within a day, I can have anybody breathing through their nose, within a couple of days sleeping, breathing through their nose, okay? And, but you see, on top of all, and I had two people this week, okay? One lady uh, in her early 70s on a CPAP machine for sleep apnea, which she'd been three and a half years. Within two days, she was off the machine. By the end of the week, sleeping better. As I point out, not out of the danger zone, so we'll she's got to build a bit more, but this is what we see all the time. But people with uh, fatigue, their, their symptoms are often fatigue, um, runny or blocked nose, congested nose, more susceptible to cold and flu, allergies, okay? You see, pollens, perfume, cigarette smokes, all these sort of allergens are always blamed for the problem. But, and same with viruses. But if people are walking around breathing through their mouth, they're not getting any filtration. They're getting a larger volume of those allergens that end up causing chemical stress on their body, which causes their heart rate to increase and their breathing increases. So really the allergy, whole allergy way of looking at it is not what we experience. When people learn to nasal breathe at a more healthy volume, they're getting less allergens, they're getting less reactions, and because they're improving their breathing, their body's now getting more oxygen because it's releasing from the blood more efficiently. So they fight off things better. Now, I mean, I get a lot of people, instead of coming to see me at the start of these problems, they end up, they've gone through all this other stuff and they come to us at the end. And, um, and they're wrapped because they get really improvement within days. But the real benefit is to continue on to build a buffer with their breathing so that life's ups and downs doesn't bring them back into that problem again. Mm. So more energy, better quality sleep, wake up refreshed, not falling asleep during the day, okay, not needing CPAP machines, not needing any asthma drugs eventually, any eventually, eventually, okay, um, greatly reduced reaction to allergies, um, they're some of the many benefits. And why? 
because oxygen is king. Yeah, oxygen is king. We can go four to five weeks without food. So I wouldn't worry too much about nutrition, important, but not too much. Four to five days about water, without water before we're dead, but, oh, everyone drink water, water. But how long can you go without oxygen? What the answer is? is not very long. <laughs> but the whole world focuses on good food, bad food, drink more water and all these sorts of things. And uh, but when you retrain the group, especially, okay, at their two ends, yeah. Elderly people, as we get, uh, uh, I use, not use the O word then, but as we <laughs> age a bit more, <laughs> we pick up more things, you know, I'm injured from playing tennis at the moment. Uh, you know, there's more drugs and more this and more that. But if they retrain their breathing, it's the one thing they can do that they can end up sleeping better, got more energy, they can do more, they're not falling asleep all the time, and they can eat and drink more. I mean, not that we emphasise that, but if you if your breathing is better, you can do a lot more. Um, whereas everything else, and for young kids, unfortunately, this is a, the really sad part. You, if you live near a primary school, you will see kids, and every second kid, you can see their teeth, their mouths open. Okay, and that's what causes crooked teeth. And if you want to know why, okay, I can demonstrate it with a simple little thing that you can do and your listeners can do right now. So both of you gentlemen <laughs> are breathing through your nose now. I have that effect on people. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> okay. So you're breathing through your nose, your lips are sealed, which is the way they should be. I want you both, now listeners, uh, to this will just have to... Bear with this bit of visual. Point that way or that way where your tongue is in your mouth. So pointing okay. up or down depending so on So we're your both tongue. pointing up. So the tongue is touching the top of the mouth, just behind the top teeth, yeah? Okay, I want you both to open your mouth. Notice how the tongue drops. That's what causes crooked teeth. Narrower jaw, long, elongated face, yeah? Every dentist, by the way, knows this, that mouth breathing causes crooked teeth, yeah? But most people, most dentists wait until kids get 13, 12, and then, of course, they've got a narrow jaw, so they take out four teeth, put braces and drag them back, yeah? Mm -hmm. And they wear a plate for a couple of years, the plate to keep the tongue up when they sleep, yeah? So this is, so this is an example of how... Mainstream medicine, unfortunately, Western medicine, of all our advances, when it comes to respiratory stuff, unfortunately, we're just stuck in this symptomatic path. Mm. And it's a cultural thing as well. You know, deep breathing, let no pain, no gain at the gym. You know, people going, <laughs> elderly people going to, to classes where they sit around the circle and they laugh as hard as they can to make them feel better. <laughs> In other words, hyperventilate as hard as they can for no reason. Yeah. Mm. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. It's interesting, and, and Nestor talks in his book a, a lot about the evolution of sort of processed foods as well as, as having an impact on that in terms of the, the facial and or maxiofacial or whatever it's called sort of development. Well, we would think a little bit different to that. I mean, processed foods, uh, overeating, uh, medication, right? We take an enormous amount of medications, people now, all have an effect of increasing the heart rate or an increase the breathing. Yeah. Um, culturally, we have a better lifestyle. Men and women work. They try and be perfect parents. They race around. They work long hours. 
All of this racing around causes overbreathing. Okay. All roads lead to oxygen. Okay. <laughs> and often lead to minute volume. So, you know, when I say somebody stops breathing in their sleep with sleep apnea, well, that's because of the overbreathing. When somebody gets, um, you know, a reaction to a virus or a reaction, react, let's make it more simple, a reaction to pollens or perfumes or dust, more medicine blames the dust and the perfume. We would say, well, what happens is that because of their breathing, they're getting too much of that and their body reacts by overbreathing. It's the overbreathing that actually causes the reaction. Brian, can we talk about the method and its effect on asthma? Uh, I mean, I, as a young fellow, I had what a doctor described as allergy-induced asthma, and it actually never triggered itself except for one occasion where I was going for a run in Canberra, and at the end of the run, I was desperate for breath, like to the point where uh, I thought I was going to die. From that point, I went and got an inhaler and always carried the inhaler, even though that's never uh, I've never actually used it can you describe how the method changes the lives of asthmatics who have more frequent attacks and concerns about their own ability to breathe sure so what happens is that as I've said is that the core we believe the cause of these things is the overbreathing. okay now what happens this is a little bit complicated, and I'll explain this in a bit more detail to people. It's not that complicated, but if you look up something called the BOHR effect, the Bohr effect, you guys might be able to see the diagram here. BO was a Russian, uh, not, not a Russian, a Scandinavian scientist that worked out that um, when people's breathing changes due to hyperventilation, whatever, in a nutshell, the body doesn't release oxygen from the blood as efficiently, okay? And so what we're saying is the human body tries to stop it, okay? Something else happens, something called smooth muscle gets affected. And for people who are born with the propensity for asthma, you, <laughs> and me, okay, um, when your breathing gets to that point, the body reacts by squeezing the bronchial tubes, yeah? And that's why you feel like you can't breathe. Okay. Now, it only affects one in 10 or 12, I believe, and it's just saying that doesn't mean to say everybody with the propensity for asthma gets asthma. I'm saying only the people, A, with the propensity for asthma and who overbreathe to the extent that it brings it on, okay? Other people that overbreathe, they get something else. They get blocked noses or they get, you know, they get... Uh, 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 sleep apnea or poor sleep or whatever. Um, so in terms of asthma, that's what happens. Now, when you get asthma and you can't breathe, your, your first urge is to try harder mm. <laughs> when you can't yes. breathe. So before you know it, you're <laughs> breathing like this, gasping like this. So you're not very far away from needing a puff of your reliever, okay? So the reliever is, is ventilant, okay? Was the Now, when I was a kid, I mean, I've got a rather disturbing birthday on Sunday. I'll be 69 on Sunday. But uh, when I was a kid, there was no Ventolin. Okay, when Ventolin came out, you might remember, Tim, it was like a revolution. It was magic. Mm. Yeah? Mm. You take a puff. We used to take these pills and make the heart race um, and breathe the smoke and all the sort of crap we used to do. But when Ventolin came out, it was like magic. And what Ventolin does is relax the smooth muscle, which is squeezing the bronchial tubes. So it opens up the bronchial tubes, okay, relaxes the bronchial tubes. And it feels great, okay, you know. But pretty soon you need two puffs or three puffs or more and more, okay. And um, after about 10 years of Ventolin coming out, the, they looked at the, the death rates with asthmatics and they found that after 10 years they were skyrocketing. They thought, well, maybe people are taking too much ventolin. So they did studies and they found three or four puffs a day would make a person's asthma worse. Right? So they studied whether it remained the same, get worse or get better. And overall, we have got worse. So then they, they invented the preventer medications. And you'll remember as a kid taking preventer. These are the corticosteroids, okay? And the original ones were Pulmacort, 
flixatide, they're, they're the common names, okay? And the idea of the preventer is you take a puff of that and it reduces inflammation in the air tubes. And the idea is the next, uh, you know, the, the world's best practice with asthma is that you, you take Ventolin for relief, but you only take, um, you only take, uh, sorry, you only take Ventolin for relief and you take the preventer every day. Okay, and the idea is the preventer reduces inflammation in the lungs. The next time you get an attack, it smells bad. So you don't need as much Ventolin, which is harmful for your breathing, yeah? So that's, that's the way it goes. But the trouble is people don't understand this, okay? People get confused. Some people don't, you know, they take this preventer, it's got the nasty steroid word, they think, oh, that can't be good. And they take it and they don't get any hit feeling. But they take Ventolin, it feels good. So they overuse the reliever drugs and underuse the preventer drugs, okay? But of course, the reliever drugs are based on adrenaline. They're all adrenal. So they pump your heart and make you breathe more. So the more Ventolin-type reliever drugs you take, the weaker you become, and so you need stronger and stronger, like most symptomatic treatments, like most painkillers, basically. Yeah. Now, studies were done. One of the biggest studies on the take method was done in, in the late 90s in Scotland, 600 persons, but it was ignored. But what happened was um, the uh, drug companies in league with the doctors came out with these stronger drugs. And these are called combination drugs, serotide, simbacort, some of the, some of the, uh, some of the names. And these drug, drugs are much stronger. They, they, that one puff of these combination drugs, one puff contains the equivalent of eight to ten puffs of Ventolin, and one puff of Preventus. It's a combination. And people are put snakes are put on these every day. So how can they take? their preventer and only take their reliever as required. They can't. They take these strong drugs, which initially give them relief, but they pump their heart and weaken, so they need stronger and stronger and stronger. Yeah. So our first when we're, and look, I've had people, young people who, are, you know, they're on such strong medication, they can't do anything. And they're, seriously, they're this close away from being the statistic, 500 people a year who die from asthma. Okay, so the first one we do is explain to them about their breathing, get their mouth closed, get every mouth, every asthmatic is a mouth breather, every single one, <laughs> no exception. Yeah? They're over breathing. Yeah? So we get their mouth closed, teach them how to clear their nose so they can breathe through the nose and start doing the exercise. And what happens when they start doing the exercises? Instead of being here, they start to be here. Now, when you go exercising, puff and puff on your bike, or whatever. <laughs> You're not pushing the danger zone, the body doesn't react. It might react a little bit. And very quickly, asthmatics don't need any reliever. They're not getting any, they're not getting, you know, the reaction. But we, we make sure that they stay on their preventive medications until they build, build, build their buffer. And then when they've had no Ventolin for a month, yeah, or no reliever, no asthma for a month, and everything's going well, they can, they can go back to the doctor because the doctor's the prescription man, and reduce their preventer by half for another month and they come off it forever. Okay? And providing they maintain that buffer, you know, they never get aspirin again. Because all the so-called triggers make them breathe more but don't push them into the danger zone. So I haven't had aspirin since 1999. If I let my breathing get really bad again, then I would get aspirin again. Mm. Okay? So it's all about teaching people how to, get, how to get to there. And it's not that difficult. And you know what? Look at blue. Everyone gets better. No one needs to learn to 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 suffer from asthma if they learn to breathe correctly. But they never will if they just simply go to the doctors, or unfortunately the asthma foundation as well in some cases. Because where do all their money come from? Unfortunately, it comes from large pharmaceutical companies. And uh, so that's that's for little kids. We can change pretty quickly, and. Um, but you can't get near kids in schools and things, right? And uh, everybody is, is not sure. We had a virus in the last two years, we still have. And, and what, what are we told to do? Wash our hands, fair enough, uh, and wear masks. Well, okay, masks can be some, but nowhere was any health authority saying, 
you know, 40, over 40% of the adult population walk around with their mouth open. So if you're breathing through your mouth, you've got no filtration. Breathe through your nose, you get filtration. Okay, the cilia, the sinus passages, they, they filter it out. Okay, <laughs> this is why people who breathe correctly, nasal breath, don't get as many colds and flu. And, and further, if your mouth is closed, okay, if you do get the virus, you're not getting as, as much. Okay, and if your breathing is good, you're getting more oxygen, well, you're going to be able to fight it off better as well. But, but of course, the health authorities, they don't get this, do they, <laughs> unfortunately? And that's just the way the world is, unfortunately. And hopefully, things like Mr. Nestor's books and other people will slowly change it for some. Yeah. Funny, I've, I've seen you write, and and it, it's interesting in this discussion. The the term mouth breather is a as a derogatory term in in wider society, and and clearly, I, I imagine you'd be an advocate of that. But but some of the techniques that that people have purported to use to stop to shut their mouths is is things like taping their their mouths at night. And there was a, a bit of I guess minor controversy in 2019 when. Uh, a relatively famous Indonesian singer, Andy Ann, sort of posted pictures of herself and her kids doing this and it caused a, a backlash. Where do you stand on, on those mechanical-type methods of trying to force nasal breathing? Okay. Um, taping the mouth when you sleep can be helpful. But I strongly disagree with people... And look, well-meaning, but people like Mr. Nestor who writes the book and talks about if you take your mouth at night, you're more likely to breathe through your nose and that will improve. But the problem comes that if people take their mouth but they're not changing their minute volume or the volume that they're breathing, then it can be, it can cause them to have a panic attack, it can cause them all kinds of problems, yeah? So I never talk to people about taping until they're actually doing the course. They understand what's going on. They understand how they're changing their breathing. And maybe we make taping their mouth an option then. Yeah? Um, and one of the problems with people talking about, um, and as for saying, you know, dangerous, once you change your breathing, well, you know, how can anybody say that there's anything wrong with with using a bit of tape for you to breathe normally while you sleep, okay, normally, okay. <laughs> but, but, but first of all, people have to understand about this volume thing. That's what people don't get, the important part. And uh, when, with my clients, I say to them, you know, after a week or so, okay, if you're taking your tape, I've got you taping your mouth at night while you sleep, the taping of the mouth does nothing. It just stops you going backwards at night, providing your breathing has come down so you can cope with breathing gently through your nose, okay? The other problem with people publicising mouth taping is a good thing for some people, that's all they think of, is that you might say, okay, take the mouth. So the person takes their mouth, they're a bad snorer or whatever, and they get improvement for a week, two weeks, maybe, maybe more, and think, oh, this, this is good, this is much better. Then one night they have a big day or they have a big night, you know, they hit the turps, they have a big meal or whatever. And of course, that night when they go to bed, an hour after they go to sleep, they explode. And they've got this tape on their mouth and they and they get and their heart goes berserk and they rip it off. And they get so frightened that they never go back to it. And then they never consider the doing breathing retraining, because all they think it is is you know, breathing through your nose and taking your mouth. Mm. Well, <laughs> a bit more to it than that. That's a problem, right? Yeah. So that's for other devices. That's for other devices. Oh, yeah. um, uh, sleep apnea is an interesting one, I think. Um, a lot of people, uh, since an Australian guy in Sydney um, uh, invented the CPAP machine, um, and 
for a long time, every second person would go to the doctor, oh, you got sleep apnea, booked in for a sleep clinic. Put all the wires on, oh, yes, you got obstructive sleep apnea or central sleep apnea, and you've got to wear this mask on your face for the rest of your life. Now, what I find time and time again with seeing people with sleep apnea and CPAP is the people that are implementing the CPAP, don't, I don't believe they really understand how it works. They say, oh, it's going to cause a pneumatic splint in the airway so the airway will stop collapsing. So we disagree. If you can use a CPAP machine, which stands for constant positive air pressure, so in other words, it's blowing into the person, into them, all night, constant, positive, into you, and it's air pressure, obviously. Now, if a person can cope with it, and only one in four can, if you can cope with it and get it just right, what it really does is a person was Person will sleep out when you breathe like this. <laughs> I'll be a bit portable for that. <laughs> okay. So if they can go with the CPAP machine, every time they breathe out, they're breathing against mm. this force. Pressure. If they can get it just right, it changes their breathing from <laughs> to which is a bit better, lower minute volume. So their body gets a bit more oxygen and they sleep better. But they're not addressing the cause of the problem. And in time, their breathing gets worse. And they go back, another sleep study, increase the pressure. Or buy the $4,000 model with the, with, 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 with the lithium batteries and huh. humidifier because they dry you out like a bitch. You know? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's, that's what happens. And that's the future for a lot of especially a lot of more elderly people, whereas, you know, um, they should at least look at uh, breathing retraining. If if they're loud snoring or poor quality sleep, I'm sure they'll be uh, much more happy with the outcome. Right. So the takeover we've established is a method, not a technique. It is about breathing retraining and, and getting that baseline to, to a more natural state and a more effective state. But there are a ton of breathing techniques out there. And um, a lot of our sort of listeners, certainly I'm uh, really interested in a practitioner of things like uh, box breathing, 478 breathing, alternate nostril breathing, Wim Hof or Tummo breathing, diaphragmatic breathing, all of these different sort of more acute techniques. Now, it seems from what you've said, a lot of those do seem to be focused on deeper slower breath rates um and then some are even so Wim Hof and Tummo are almost the other way we're deliberately trying to uh engender a sympathetic response by deliberate hyperventilation for a period how do these sort of techniques um I I guess interface with the the Bateko philosophy is there such a thing as bad breathing with these techniques or are they all sort of pointing in the right direction very interested on your perspective on on some of the other forms of breathing techniques out there I don't have much time for them, basically. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Look, Wim Hof is an example of, of someone who does extreme things, okay? He jumps in ice baths and ice water and he does this extreme bloody hyperventilation stuff. Now, if you've got someone who's struggling with asthma or struggling with um, sleep apnea or struggling, an elderly person with comorbidities, they're yeah. not going to do any of that stuff. Mm. And, in fact, it's going to be very harmful. Yeah. Um, all I, an example is look, up until about 2015, I used to teach 20, 30 people a week. Okay? I would go to Perth six times a year, Brisbane six times a year, Cairns, all these people. And what I used to do is I used to put an advertisement in news agents. I spent $4,000 advertising. If you've got asthma, sleep apnea, snoring, come to a seminar and I'll explain how breathing retraining could help you, right? And 20, 30, 40, 50 people would come on a Monday and I'd explain it in an hour and a half. I'd give them some techniques on how to clear their nose and some advice on how to reduce their breathing while they sleep. And half the people would sign up to do my course from Tuesday to Friday, okay? 
hour and a half a day and four days. And that was great. 2015 caught up with me though, because the internet caught up with me. And what happened was nobody reads newspapers, nobody answers ads in the paper. So how do you communicate this stuff? Well, everyone's on the web and I'm on the web, but guess what? You Google breathing and all the crazies are on the web. Goodness me, if, if the medical world respiratory specialists can't get it, the rest of them can't either. But everyone's got this little technique, you know, and, you know, there's so much misinformation. Look at sleep, for example. Oh, you've got to have eight hours sleep. You've got to have eight hours sleep. What a lot of rubbish. Sleep has got nothing to do with time. It's got everything to do with quality. The only thing people do when they're asleep is breathe. Might be a little bit of digestion, but we stop that as well. But all they're doing is breathing. So if you snore louder than you did 10 years ago, or you don't sleep as well as you did 10, 20 years ago, guess what? You're, you don't breathe as well as you did 10 years ago. Simple as that. So I believe all these other techniques uh, basically um, are often techniques, little things to sort of not try this little thing, try counting when you're breathing, you know, all that. They do nothing. That's what we do is teach people how to understand how breathing works to make it efficient and apply a method that will actually improve the quality of breathing and directly relieve them from serious conditions such as asthma, reduce the breathlessness from emphysema even, not get rid of it, but just improve their condition, get rid of sleep apnea, make them uh, reduce their snoring. People sleeping with their partner again, okay? For hundreds and thousands of people that we've taught, not just one day, but a whole week and continuing on. In those first 10 years, I used to give a money back guarantee if people didn't get better. Huh? And, and that's why I believe that what we do works because we've seen it in people. But there's confusion <laughs> and the web doesn't help because as you know, you go looking for something on the web, you've got a filtration problem because for every one thing you find, there could be three or four things that maybe aren't that, that, that good. <laughs> and that's, the, that, that's my problem now. I don't, I don't travel anymore. I only teach people in Brisbane or by, via Zoom. And, uh, um, and that's one of the main reasons because of the, conf the, the overall um, misinformation about breathing. And I'll just emphasize it again, that simple point, the people's breathing changes in time, causes, causes these problems and can be changed back. Nobody understands that. No, sounds simple, but no. Yeah. Ask me a question about exercise. I'm going to, that was exactly my second last question. So Ben and I have always trained in the CrossFit style, this you know, high intensity interval training and some of the leading CrossFit programmers are now programming in nasal breathing. They've been suggesting that it's far better for your physiology and as an on-ramp, they insist that you warm up just nasal breathing. Now, being a bit ignorant to it, I saw this appearing in programming and I thought, oh, it's just to perhaps keep your heart rate down. But can you talk to the value of the style of breathing and exercise, nasal versus mouth, whether there is any... So, first of all, we've got to come back to, I mean, use the word style of breathing. Yeah. No, I'm talking about quality of breathing. And quality of breathing means more oxygen. Okay, more oxygen, being able to do more on less breath. Okay, that's the bottom line. Right? Now, all right, people are oh, suggesting people breathe through their nose. <laughs> well, you know, this is that's what the nose is for breathing, the mouth is for eating and talking. But of course, you look at people exercising, they're all got the mouth open, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> now, a little, you shouldn't. You know, if you've got asthma, for example, and you exercise, <laughs> and you get exercise-induced asthma, or you get asthma, it's because the way you were breathing has brought it on. Right? So, look, here's what happens when, when, when we exercise. 
And when we exercise, our muscles work harder. Yeah? Our muscles work harder, so they need more fuel. So you need to breathe more. So immediately, your heart rate increases to pump blood to the working muscles, carrying the oxygen. Okay? And of course, immediately start breathing more because you're using more oxygen and we get oxygen out of the air when we breathe. But when people start exercising, they don't think, goodness me, my muscles need more oxygen. I think I better increase my breathing rate. No, 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 no. It happens automatically. Yeah? And the reason why it happens automatically, because the cells and the muscles that are working are producing carbon dioxide. And the heart is pumping the carbon dioxide back by the veins, just like it's pumping the oxygen by the arteries, the other direction. Yeah? And, the, and the veins are carrying it back into your lungs. And this CO2, which is often looked at as the bad boy when it comes to breathing, but it's not. There's a, a, a certain level you need to have of CO2. And as the level rises, it triggers a person to breathe and clear it. Okay? Now, when people overbreathe, hyperventilate over a period of time, that level gets really low. And the Bohr effect tells us that that's why they're not getting oxygen as much. Right? So when people are exercising, okay, they are triggered to breathe because the CO2 comes up and they breathe, they breathe, they breathe. But what happens for a lot of people is when they exercise, a lot of people exercise and they breathe so hard <laughs> that they actually blow off more carbon dioxide than they're producing. So the balance becomes all wrong. Okay, so the breathing gets a little bit worse. And if they're already at the line, okay, which is what I was doing when I was riding my bike, I was pretty, pretty fit, but my breathing was lousy. And so when I breathed really hard exercising, I blew off that last little bit and then my body gave me asthma. Okay. Now, if you're not an asthmatic, like most people, and you're exercising like this, you're not exercising efficiently. Okay. And the oxygen is not getting to your muscles. And once you cross a line, you go into the anaerobic zone, which means now, because your muscles aren't getting oxygen, it produces lactic acid. And then chemical reaction goes off, gives off heat, energy to keep you going. Waste product, lactic acid. Okay, and that takes a couple of days. And that slows and tires the performance as well. So by retraining your breathing, when you exercise, already you're going to need less breathing for more performance, okay? Now, for people who are ordinary breathers <laughs> or, or just um, uh, recreational exercise, like most of us, okay, I'm not talking about elite athletes here, I will admit, though, elite athletes are different, but it's so for most people, you should exercise, but just to the point that you can still breathe in and out through your nose. If you can't breathe through your nose, your mouth starts coming, it should slow down go get breathing retraining so that you can do more and more and more. <laughs> now, uh, but nobody does that. Nobody does that. And people think, oh, well, that's not possible. Well, let me give you two examples of people that play, they play, they play sport at a very high level when they breathe through their nose. Did you see the guy that won the marathon for the, uh, in the Olympics last year? He's won. Okay. Keep the, Kenyan, the Kenyan runners, look at them. But there's somebody else close to home, two people. When you finish this, you can Google a guy called, he plays one of the sports that's hardest to keep your mouth closed, plays tennis. His name's Roger Federer. You Google Roger Federer, and then when the results come up, click the button that says images, and you get a page full of pictures of Roger Federer. Ignore all the pretty boy pictures and look at all the, all the action shots. His mouth's closed and every one of them plays four and a half hours against Rafa and his mouth's shut the whole time. He's not a bad player. Yeah? There's another one, a little lady, a female athlete. Her name is Ash Barty. That's her. Unfortunately, she retired the other day. But go and do the same thing. Google her images. Look at all the action shots. Ash has got her mouth closed the whole time. Now, they're both pretty good athletes, in fact, number one, and they play at a high level, and it's possible to do. <laughs> so if you want, you want to improve your sporting performance 
the best way you can do it is breathing retraining. If I can get to my football team, the Bombers, because <laughs> I see every second one of them, every now and then you see one puffing on a ventil and puff, you know. If I could tell my team one thing, that's the football team, because I'm a bomber tragic, that yeah? <laughs> when you go flat out after the ball, the minute you back off, close your mouth. Don't recover like that. And they'll make less lactic and they'll have better stamina. I'll suggest that to Gary O'Donnell, who <laughs> plays at the footy club with me and is a close neighbour of mine that the... Not He's me, beloved. Gary O'Donnell, from, from, from the, the ex-bomber captain. That's right. Ah. Yeah, 250-game All-Australian or thereabouts. Ah. Yep, I'll, uh, I'll let him know that <laughs> the Essendon Footy Club needs breathing you know retraining. Do you know what? They won't believe you. Nobody will believe you, right? <laughs> All these elite sports people, you know. I mean, anxiety is, is a classic word. If someone's having a panic attack and somebody's upset, what, will, what, what do they tell them? Take a deep breath and calm down. Yeah? A deep breath and calm down. Now, I'll take a deep breath. <gasps> I just took a noisy upper chest mouth breath. Now, if someone's got having a panic attack, they're breathing like this. <laughs> they're breathing noisy upper chest and through their mouth, and we're expecting them to do the same and expecting that to help them. <laughs> Little bit of advice. If you know someone who's really stressed, obviously lost, lost it, having a bit of a panic attack, the best thing you can say to them is ask them, put your hand on their shoulder and say, try and close your mouth and breathe slowly through your nose. If you mm. can, it will help you deal with it better. Awesome. Telling people to calm down, hmm. all those husbands out there, you know it doesn't work, does it? Mm. Yes, yeah, you do the opposite. Uh, wonderful tips. Okay, one last question. Um, you've been very generous with your time, Brian. So for someone that teaches a breathing method for a living, beyond breathing, what do you do to relax? Well, uh, what I, do, I mean, if you improve your breathing, you feel relaxed anyway. For that. But um, look, we've renovated, my wife and I have renovated a Queenslander and we run a B&B, a two-bedroom B&B. It's called Belmoral Queenslander.com.au. So <laughs> anyone's visiting Brisbane. <laughs> and we're into gardens. Um, I, I, I started playing tennis again. So we've got a fantastic uh, social uh, tennis uh, group here in Morningside, uh, Monday mornings and Thursday mornings. Um, my kids and grandkids are down in Melbourne, but they come up and down. And uh, we have we have uh, a lot of barbecues in our Queenslander and Friday night drinks with the neighbours. So that's what we do. Brings you lots <laughs> of joy. Well, uh, that's that's fantastic, and thank you very much for your time. And it sounds like people can stay with you and perhaps learn how to breathe at the same time. Balmoralqueenslander.com.au. Yeah, yeah. Mainly for people um, combination. Uh, we have, we have. Uh, two beautiful ensuite rooms. I can look it up. I still teach about 50 people a year. I don't travel anymore. I don't do any overt marketing. I just wait for word of mouth people, mainly in Brisbane. And I think I've got someone in Perth via Zoom this week and someone else had one person in uh, Abu Dhabi or somewhere last year, which is weird. But, uh, yeah, I still, I still do a bit of that as well. Awesome. Well, we'll certainly link um, uh, all your, your sort of references on uh, in the show notes. But, Brian, thank you very much. It, it's been, I was going to say, it's been a breath of fresh air. It's certainly <laughs> been uh, illuminating. It's, it's great to talk and great to learn a bit more about this fundamentally important thing we do called breathing. Thanks yeah. for your time. Thanks very much for having me, guys, and good luck with the whole thing. Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60.